folks to another installment of input output as always i am brian and with me is my pal vince say hi vince hi vince knew that was coming should have uh that's awful yeah well that's... would you expect anything less from us uh not for me <laughs> i'm in a dark place right now uh, well we'll get you out of that by talking about some music or something um so uh, tonight, we are going to be talking about the new Eleanor Friedberger record, New View. And as some of you might know, Eleanor was one of the two primary members of the Fiery Furnaces, along with her brother, Matt. They are one of the many, many sibling bands that have been in existence over the course of the last 50 or so years of rock and roll. And so our question tonight to start us off, Vince, is what are some of your favorite bands that feature siblings? <laughs> okay, so are we, are we going to trade off here? I do one, yeah, you do one? Or? Yeah, that works. Yeah, and, and we should probably say before we start that we've eliminated the Kinks and the Beach Boys from the conversation. Because, of course, the Kinks <laughs> and the Beach Boys are the two best bands with siblings. So let's just uh, leave that aside and, and go from there. All right. Well, um... I am going to start out with Arcade Fire with uh, Win Butler and Will Butler. Yeah, I really liked Will's solo album from last year. Yes, yeah, I did. Not quite enough for it to make my uh, my rankings, but yes, I, I, I thought it was good. It did not make my top 30 either, so don't feel too bad. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, I see your arcade fire, and I raise you the bangles. Um, I am actually a pretty huge... <laughs> I've been really rediscovering my love of '80s pop lately. Uh, part of that is, is being I guess a, so. Part of that is being a dad because I feel like a lot of '80s pop music is very direct, and I can play it for my daughter, and she really she like picks up the melody quickly, and she really enjoys it. So um, I've been listening to a lot of the Bangles, and uh, they feature drummer Debbie Peterson and lead guitarist Vicky Peterson. And uh, for for my money, it doesn't get much better in terms of uh, '80s pop songs than Eternal Flame. your eyes give me your hand darling. do you feel my heart beating do you understand do you feel the same am I only dreaming is this burning 
my first pick, the Bengals. Who is your second pick? My my second pick um, is a little bit of a cheat, but I I'm I'm not going to apologize for it. Uh, I actually picked the White Stripes. I knew you were going to say Jack that. Jack and Meg White. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> as soon as you said it's a so... cheat, I'm like that son of a bitch is going to say the White Stripes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I. Uh... I am a huge White Stripes fan, like I like so much so that um, I'm actually mad every time I see Jack. I mean, I know it's over, <laughs> but I'm like mad every time I see him working on a different project, you know, especially on a solo project. <laughs> I want those like weird early years back again, you know. as to whether they were or not you know for for the longest time was part of their appeal so um i figured i had to include them that's that's a cheat but i'll allow it um (laughs) good good because i'm not going to think of a third one off the top of my head okay that's fair uh my second pick is a band from philadelphia they just reunited their quote classic lineup and that is a band called marah they are formed around the brother duo of Dave Bialanco and Serge Bialanco. And uh, are you familiar with Marat at all? I'm not at all. I'm going to have to write this down. M-A-R-A-H. They are um, very much a, a garagey, folky uh, band. Uh, this will give some context for them. Uh, their biggest fan is Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen loves these uh-huh. guys. Um they're from Philadelphia, and they moved to Brooklyn a couple of years ago. I believe they're back in Pennsylvania now. Uh, they released a really weird album in 2014 called Mountain Minstrelly of Pennsylvania. Essentially, uh, Dave Bialanco found a book of old lyrics from like a uh, like a 1931, I believe 1931 or 1932 book called Mountain. Mountain Minstrelly of Pennsylvania. It was just song titles and lyrics, and he wrote new songs around them. Then he moved to this little town in Pennsylvania and recorded the whole album in an old church with people from the town playing instruments. So, like, there's a barbershop quartet from the town that sings on it, and, like, a seven- or eight-year-old fiddler who plays on it. really weird and really great 
but yeah, Marah. That's my second pick. So this brings us to to our favorite of the sibling bands. So who is your favorite sibling band, Vince? Yeah. All right. So my favorite sibling band is one of my maybe top five bands ever. Um, and I, and I it, now that I'm mentioning all three here, I realize how contemporary my list is. But that's I guess that's the kind of person I am. I'm I'm a huge fan of music from the last decade. Um, so I didn't reach very deep for this one, but I think it's a really good choice because it is actually a band that includes two sets of siblings. So, um, yeah, do you have any guesses based on uh, it, that? You, uh, maybe? <laughs> well, if you're not that confident, I'll just come out and tell you. Yeah, just it's go the for na- it, yeah. It's the National. Oh, so I should have had the that. National... Yeah, the National featuring uh, Bryce and Aaron Dessner on both on guitar, and then uh, Brian and Scott uh, Devendorf uh, in the rhythm section. We'll stay inside till somebody finds us. Do whatever the TV tells us. Stay inside our rosy-minded friends for days. We'll stay. to include two pairs of brothers. So I thought they were a good choice for number one here. I like that we have, we've listed five different bands so far, and it's going to be a sixth different band. I was worried we were going to double up on something here, but <laughs> we haven't. Uh, uh-huh. My choice is The Breeders, which, except for their first album, which did not feature a sister Kelly Deal, hasn't built around Kim and Kelly Deal. Um my favorite Breeders album is uh, 2001's title TK, and uh, that featured both siblings as well as bass player Mondo Lopez, guitarist Richard Presley, and drummer Jose Medeles. albums of all time perhaps mm. uh the the deal siblings are actually identical twins and so uh their voices are incredibly similar to one another kim smoked more so you can hear her voice a little <laughs> bit raspier than kelly's is but i love their sort of twin magic they can do with their uh with their vocals there so uh yeah, yeah. those are I six good choices i think i think so yeah i didn't realize they were twins that's that's cool yeah yeah um, that is our sibling music conversation, and let's jump right into our conversation of Eleanor Friedberger's new view. Not the exhibition, 
Pick this album. Tell us why is this the album you want to talk about tonight? What is it about the album that speaks to you? Well, um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of hers. I have been ever since the Fiery Furnaces, and even though I think her solo stuff is different, um, I just really like her voice. You know, her voice was the thing that kind of like cut through the weird like. Fiery Furnaces could be like weird and experimental almost at times, and mm-hmm, and absolutely. Uh, they'd have they'd have these like weird bouncy, uh, uh, sprawling songs that were, um, you know, they could sound like a circus or something. Credit card for two cuppers of water. They had a dirty beady baby, so for good luck I bought her. A rented Hyundai with two flats and a windshield, no speedometer and a handbrake that squealed. When the sun came up, I couldn't put down the visor, so I put on my hat and put a question to my advisor. Well, whose trucks are those that are parked by the town? But he only went mumble with his but eyes. Her, her voice always cut through that, and it was, it was. uh a uh, pretty a pretty strong vocal, but but very down to earth, you know. Um, nothing, nothing uh, fancy or ornate about it, you know. And uh, and so I've I've followed her ever since then. And um, anytime she has a new release, I'm excited to listen to it. So I thought we would. Uh, it, it happened. It came out on January 22nd, I believe. So so. Um, I thought it was the right time, and and uh, also I should say this up front. This should be like a disclaimer on on every episode. I'm extremely <laughs> biased towards female singer songwriters. Like for whatever <laughs> reason, they just do it for me uh, in a musical sense. And so so anytime there's like a like a solo album by a prominent uh, female artist. There's a good chance we're going to end up listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, uh, what I find really interesting about this album and about her career in general, but particularly this album, is if you played a Fiery Furnaces record and then like gave – you know, you, you played it for somebody who never heard the band before – and then you gave that same person a piece of paper and said, like, all right, you're going to listen to now a solo album from one of the members of this band. Write down, like, four adjectives you expect to hear as part of this uh, as part of this album. None of them would be, like, Laurel Canyon uh, folk rock <laughs> or, like, uh-huh. you know, plaint- plaintive guitar melodies. Like, it's just it's, – it's amazing to me how um, 
for lack of a of a more nuanced word, how normal her solo albums are. Yeah. Compared to how abnormal the Fiery Furnaces records were. I'm not saying mm-hmm. one is better than the other. I just think it's an interesting it's interesting that the same person is responsible for both records. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean at times on this album it approaches something close to like downright country almost. Yeah. And certainly. uh and yeah, that to me couldn't be further from where she and her brother started, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but it's great. It's uh actually this album um I don't know about you. I I I <laughs> I texted you earlier today about listening to uh, – I was listening to Both Sides Now by mm-hmm. – uh, well, I was listening to the Leonard Nimoy version. <laughs> but I had thought of the Judy Collins song because Eleanor Friedberger on this album reminded me of, of her. That type of like 60s into 70s sort of folk uh, thing that was going on. You know, do you see any of that? Mm-hmm. Do you hear yeah. any of that? Yeah, I, I, I can hear that, certainly. Uh, it's interesting. The, the auditory touchstone for me is something actually very contemporary. To me, this sounds a lot like the last couple of real estate records. Mm, interesting. Pretty guitar melodies over relatively spare arrangements, you know, really well played, but nothing sort of showy or overplayed with the vocals really out front, lots of acoustic guitars. Um, that That's sort of where, where my ears went, but I definitely hear what you're talking about as well. I was just struck, you know, it, it's funny. I, I think when you're somebody who's really, you know, uh, dangerously obsessed with music like i think both of us are sometimes you try and like predict a trend ahead of time or say like, all right this is this is the next big thing and i really didn't think that laurel canyon rock was going to be the next big trend but i think we're really seeing that pop up 
just about everywhere right now. There's a lot of bands that are hearkening to that sound, and that does, you know, reflect that late 60s, early 70s folk scene quite strongly. So I, I don't think either one of us is incorrect in our our sonic uh, pinpoint, because I think that you're thinking of the original sound, and I'm kind of thinking of the reconstituted sound that we're getting from some modern bands now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's a connection I wouldn't have made, I don't think. Um, but Do you I hear it now that I say it, it, though? Yeah, now that you say it, I mean, that makes that makes sense. For sure. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Now, were you a fan of either of her solo albums before this? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and each one of them has been a little bit of a, a step away, I think, from what sh- what they were doing on fiery furnaces and uh, or in fiery furnaces and um i think this is definitely her most straightforward so far mm-hmm. um but the last one uh personal record was not too much more i think I, I it wasn't like it was a totally askew album i think this just the instrumentation is more consistent track to track so maybe yeah. it, maybe it gives off the illusion of normalcy a little bit easier than, than the other one did. Yeah, yeah. And and in preparation, I've been listening to her other stuff, and I keep coming back to this album. I actually really like it. Um, I, I would say right now it's my favorite thing that she's done yet, which is maybe a strong statement to make. But but um, I just really like I like the storytelling on this album too. Um, a lot of the songs. Uh, lyrically deal with um, the, a woman's perspective, you know, which uh, mm-hmm. that makes sense, you know, I mean, that seems kind of trite to say it, you know, but but because, of course, uh, music from a woman would, you know, include the perspective of a woman, obviously, but right. there's so many there's so many lines on the album that are overtly about the female experience, whether it's her own experience or sometimes she's telling it from the point of view of um, someone she purports to know, or at least in the storytelling structure of the song she knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's overtly about that. And I'm really interested. I always like seeing uh, music made from the perspective of the, uh, of the female gender, you know? Um mm-hmm. It's always. Well, it's, I think it's for so long something we, I can't claim have... to understand, but <laughs> right. And I yeah. think for so long there were so few good examples of that too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure it was out there, but in terms of listening to, to rock radio or growing up, you know, in the time we grew up, there just weren't as many. The, the ratio of male to female artists on the radio was probably five to one, if not more. Yeah. Right. And and yeah, you had your like. Joni Mitchell's and your Janis Joplin's back in the day, but, but um, yeah, from a from a like singer songwriter perspective, um, in the modern era, there's just a ton to to call from now. Mm-hmm. Which is great. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. You said that this is your favorite of her work so far. I definitely say this is. Um, I like this as much or more than any Fiery Furnaces record, but mm. I think that Personal Record, her album from a couple of years ago, is is still my favorite thing she's ever done. 
Okay. Um, that album was co-written with Wesley Stace, the songwriter formerly known as John Wesley Harding. You win the argument at the end of every night. I never know the perfect time to hit the bedside light. Then we lie awake and watch headlights climb the blinds. I want you to know what's going on in my mind. I think as a lyricist, Wesley Stace is one of the best that there is. And so I think that this album is just a little bit lyrically not as interesting as a uh, personal record. And just on a on a completely personal level, Stare at the Sun from Personal Record, I think is the best pop song of the millennium so far. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's wow. a nearly perfect song. And it's uh-huh. it's an earworm that gets stuck in my head all the time. And I just I think everything about it from the lyrics to the melody to the the sort of minimal guitar solo in it is is absolutely perfect. To me, this album doesn't have any one song as great as that song, but it certainly has its fair share of, of very, very good songs. Um, what is what are some, some sort of your your two or three favorites from the album? So, um, so I really like the opener. Um, he didn't mention his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a it's a really catchy tune, first of all, and it 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 kicks off the album. Again, kind of with a, a a pretty strong mission statement about what the rest of the album is going to be sort of about, um, which again is is some you know something overtly from the feminine perspective, um, and so I really like that one. But I really can, love, we, can we talk I about thought, that song for one second? Yeah, yeah. Let's stop. Yeah, sure. Yep, yep. Uh, um, what? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you mishear a lyric one way or the other and it's hard to to unhear it. What do you what do you think she's saying in the chorus? Once again, you're what?
I guess I uh <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. Sorry, buddy. It 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 sounds to me, and I know this is not what she's saying, but it sounds like she's saying once again you're a butt. <laughs> okay, I doubt it's that, but um, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's not that. But that's all I can hear it as now, and uh, it really distracts me when I listen to this song. So I was hoping you knew the lyric and could could free me from this prison of misunderstanding. Huh? No, I'm afraid I can't. <laughs> ah, all right. Uh, so, what are what are the what, what song were you about to say that you really enjoyed? I was gonna say I I really love the run of the last three songs, um, mm-hmm. so, um, all so all known things which I believe is track nine, um, yep. that that is the one that instantly made me think of uh, Judy Collins both sides now. If you turn if you like hear the opening of that song. Like I defy you now that I've said that for you to not hear it because um, even even the lyrical content, um, you know, the, the opening of, of Judy Collins' song kind of like paints a fantastical picture, um, and and the opening of All Known Things kind of does the same thing, um, but then I like the the repetition of the chorus and um, I think it's really interesting. It's a, it's it's quite a throwback song, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually it strikes, this could be totally off and I'm not even this kind of person anyway, but it just struck me as like oddly spiritual <laughs> in a weird way. Like, interesting. I just, just the, just all known things like, like that when you're, when you're comparing something to all known things, that's just <laughs> a very general, like, like a very holistic way of putting something yeah you know? it, it almost sounds a little bit like and i don't know if, if this is a reference that's gonna that you're gonna get or not it almost reminds me of uh from godspell all good gifts <laughs> sure you know yeah. just lyrically that that idea and soft refreshing I love musicals, Brian. We're going to have so much fun on this show, because so do I. (laughs) I can't wait till this gets really weird. (laughs) Me either, brother. Uh, This is going to be fun. Um, Um, And then then, uh, after that track, there's Does Turquoise Work, mm -hmm. track 10, and then that that moves directly into like, there's no break between the songs. I, I, the first couple times I heard it, I actually thought it was the same song and it was just really long. Like a second movement um, or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, go, it goes right into a long walk, which is, um, again, I love the imagery that she puts into that song. Um, and it's just a really strong closer for the album. And I am all about strong closers. Me too. Always be closing is a <laughs> motto that I made up myself. Yeah. Um, a Long Walk is probably my favorite song on the album also. Mm. Uh, certainly one of the ones that stuck with me the most. I also really enjoy Never is a Long Time, 
which falls kind of right smack dab in the middle of the album. And it's the only song on the album up to that point that's really uh, much different tempo-wise or feel-wise. So it sort of breaks up the album nicely. One criticism that might be fair to lob at the album is if I could see how somebody might find it to be very, um, very consistent in its tempo and tone in a negative way, you know, like, yeah, samey. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so I think if you do feel that way, having never as a long time, which is a a slower, more... um, it has a real nice finger-picked acoustic guitar on it. You know, that that might be the one that sort of breaks up the album a little bit for you. So yeah. um, that's one of my favorites. Now, have you heard the track False Alphabet City? No. You know what? I saw she had a music video for that, but I didn't, I didn't check that out. Okay, that was the first song I heard. That was released as a non-album single probably back in October or November. And it was the first thing I heard from the album, and it got me really excited. And I think that's a little bit more maybe uh, rockier than the rest of the album. Everyone's searching for their own letter in the false alphabet city. Everyone's searching for their own letter in the false alphabet city. I think it's probably closer in tone to something from Personal Record than it would be from this album. Um, it's a really good song, and it's, it's about New York City, which is, you know, I live for those that, that haven't been following our careers over at Multiversity or our <laughs> personal friends and family. Uh, I, I kind of grew up, not kind of, I definitely grew up in the direct suburbs of New York City in a little town called Creskill, New Jersey, eight miles from the George Washington Bridge. And uh, I have since moved a little bit further out into the New Jersey wilderness, but you know, New York City is is definitely that. When I think of a city, that's what I think of. So any media involving New York City has has some sort of special tie to me because it is it is sort of where and how I grew up. So False Alphabet City, from that perspective, struck the chord with me right away. But it's also it's a really nice, strong song, and uh, I recommend you checking it out. And I think it's kind of odd that it's not on the album, but. I also I like the fact that the age we're living in now, people can release non-album singles and all that a whole lot easier than they could a couple of years ago, and so we're we're seeing more I think artists picking the songs that really make the album and not just putting all their new completed songs out. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. Um. Anything else you want to say about any specific song on the album? Uh, no, I don't think. I think we covered 
you know, our favorites. And um, so, so how do you feel about the album overall? I mean, I can see by the end of the year, I always like to, I always like to judge albums, um, you know, in the context of, do I think this is even going to stand the test of time to the end of the year? Uh-huh. You know, because I always think about, for for my own like dumb entertainment, I do a list of my top 30 albums at the end of the year, as we alluded to earlier. So do I. Yep. Yep. And I, and I like to, um, I like to try to guess whether I can think an album is going to merit ending up on that list. Mm -hmm. And I can see this one just making it, you know, depending on how the rest of the year goes. Like it's, it's definitely, like I said, it's my favorite thing that she's done as a solo artist. Um, but I think you probably don't feel as strongly about it as I do. No, but I, I, I do like it a lot. You know, um, it's interesting. I just read, you know, in, in leading up to doing the show today, I was reading a couple of interviews with her just to get some insight about the album. And she did an interview with The Quietus where she uh, they asked her to pick 13 albums that meant something to her and then talk about them. And she was talking about a certain album, and I forget which one it is offhand now, being a great album to, like, do dishes to. <laughs> and like do work on the house, and I think that's a perfect description of this album because I think it's 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 very pleasant and it's the melodies are really strong, and I could see putting this on when friends are over for you know for a meal and it working well or it working well just you know doing the dishes and singing along. I don't think it's an album that's going to. Okay, like, like last week we talked about David Bowie's Black Star, yeah. and that's an album that demands you to sit there and listen. Mm-hmm. You can't really do the dishes and listen to Black Star. Yeah, it, it requires more of you than that, and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think albums like that stick with me more, and are more striking than I think an album like this will be at the end of the year. That's not to say I won't listen to this album more than maybe some of the albums that I like more, because I do find it a very pleasant listen. But I, I don't know if it's going to necessarily be in my top. Eh, it, it might make the back end of the top thirty. Sure. Okay. What I always find hard about about judging things in that context is, you know, and, you know, you've really inspired me this year to listen to a lot more new music than maybe I would have ahead of time, uh, or, or in years past, rather. And, you know, I always think, like, if I was 15 and I bought this album on CD with my, you know, uh, the money that I made working at the movie theater, wherever I was working at the time... I would probably this might be my new album purchase of the week, if not the month, if not the six weeks or so. Sure. So I would listen to this album a hundred times in the first six weeks I owned it. And sometimes I wonder if my current listening habits don't <laughs> allow me to get as attached to things because I'm not I don't have that you know, I, I had a big C D collection. I probably had a couple hundred CDs by the time I was in high school. Sure. And that was bigger than a lot of my friends had. But I currently have an infinite album with number, <laughs> record, number of records at my disposal so you know i just i don't know if if this was one of 10 albums i heard this year it would obviously make my top 10 for that reason but you know but it would be i i think i'd have a stronger personal connection to it than i do yeah if that makes if that makes sense that does make sense and that's the that that this is probably a discussion for like its own episode or something about uh-huh. you know what it was like to buy music 
when you were younger versus what it's like to subscribe to music now, you know? Well, I, I still buy music, actually. Well, I, um, I, I buy vinyl, so I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. But uh, I, I, I buy digital downloads quite a bit. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, See, I, I used to before streaming. I, I use streaming to hear new stuff, mm-hmm. and if I like something, I buy it. Okay. But I don't subscribe. I, I, I use Spotify free. Oh, I see. You know, so yeah. so I, I use whatever budget I would be using on my streaming service to buy records. Still, I got gotcha. you. Okay, I'm very old school that way. I really like the idea of even if it's just I'm just owning you know digital copies. I do like knowing that I own it, and partially because I do like supporting the artists and how as cheesy as that sounds, you know. Yeah. No. That's yeah. Uh, but I think I, I think paying for a streaming. They probably don't make that much more off of my, you know, four ninety nine e music purchase <laughs> than they do off your, you know, fifteen dollar a month Apple Music subscription or whatever the case may be. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I think what it's helped me do is listen to more music than I ever have. Cause oh, I, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and I think I think your point is is a keen one, but for me also the cream just does rise to the top so oh yeah yeah i've been pretty good these last several years at judging um you know if i don't like this i'm just i'm not going to listen to it again and i can find the albums that i'm going to keep listening to you know and uh and this is going to be one of them i think um the um the fear i always have is when i was a uh I guess it would have been a freshman in high school, or maybe a sophomore in high school. It was either, it was either the end of freshman year, or beginning of sophomore year, is when Weezer's Pinkerton came out, uh. and none of my friends bought it but me because they all heard El Scorcho and didn't like it. <laughs> and I and I, I I liked it enough to buy the album. And the first time I listened to the album, I hated it. Oh man! And now it's in my top five records of all time. Sure. And so I don't know. A part of that was I was I was a. I was a high school dipshit, you know, so <laughs> it's a little bit different. But I, I worry that like I hope every, every time I, I dismiss an album, I say that like, I hope this isn't Pinkerton that I'm that I'm giving up on. But I paid my twelve bucks or whatever it was for Pinkerton, so I listened to it fifteen more times. Sure, and grew to love it so much that uh, tired of sex. I used to I, my CD player in high school that I had in my room was had an alarm clock on it, uh-huh. and so I would set every morning. Tired of sex woke me up. And I would play this little game with, with with Rivers Cuomo every morning, where he would say, and I'd say, "Me too," and then he'd say, and I'd say, "Me too," and then he'd say, "So I'd say, not me." <laughs> and that was how I started wow. every morning for like two years. Well, that just made the last half hour of our show worth it. I think <laughs> for, the, for that embarrassing story of my youth. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's great. That's a good note to end on, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So that's that's New View by Eleanor Friedberger. Check it out. Brian, now is the part where you suggest an album for us to listen to for next week. Yes. Um, so I was trying to find a different angle to take. You know, last week I just picked the same title. <laughs> We're not doing that this week. But I figured this is Friedberger's third solo album after leaving a group that was uh, quite experimental. And her solo career has been on an arc more towards um, 
Norm- the mainstream normalcy. or normalcy. I don't, I don't know how, how you want to put that. But so I wanted to find a, a, an analog to this. I wanted to find a, 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 somebody who left a, a more experimental band and was doing something a little bit more mainstream on their third solo album. So the album we're going to listen to for next time is Peter Gabriel's third self-titled <laughs> solo album. Uh, some call it Melt. Some call it Three. Uh are you familiar at all with, with Peter Gabriel's solo <laughs> yes. stuff? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. D- do you like it? I um semi ironically. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm excited then. Yeah. Um. I, I look at a, a lot of the music for was that was that 80s now? Is I believe that, that was 1980. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I look at a lot of the music that I enjoy from the 80s, uh, kind of on an ironic level. That doesn't make it like bad or anything. Right. I just, right. You know. <laughs> I mean, just to put this in context, this is pre-Sledgehammer, yep. pre-In Your Eyes, uh, you know, um, it's uh, the only song that I think the sort of casual Gabriel fan might know is Biko. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Peter Gabriel's 1980 album, Melt, or it's... It, it's really just called self-titled, but you know, we'll call it melt for the purposes of this uh, of this exercise. Alright. Welcome back to Input Output. We are going to be talking about Peter Gabriel's 1980 album titled Peter (laughs) Peter Gabriel. Uh, This is the third solo album by Peter Gabriel after leaving Genesis. He um, released his first album, which is self-titled, which people call Car, because he's in a car on the cover. And then people, and then he released uh, second self-titled, which people call Scratch, because he is apparently is scratching on uh, like the surface of the album. And then this is Melt, and it's called that because on the cover it was a Polaroid taken of Mr. Gabriel that he uh, like manipulated to look like he was melting. So. Um, yeah, that is sort of the background of it. Now, when we talked about this last week, you had said that you didn't really have too much of a connection to Peter Gabriel outside of like an ironic enjoyment of his kind of 80s hits. Um, so what was your initial impression of the album? Um, I So uh, thanks to his music videos, I kind of always had this idea that he was um... – like a real weird artist, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I really appreciate that. Like I I I used to love his music videos. They used to scare the crap out of me <laughs> when I was when I was younger. But uh, but of course those were all of his hits, really. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't familiar with any of his music beyond that. But I always got the idea that there was maybe more to him than 
the hits because then sledgehammer then sledgehammer yep <laughs> and uh <laughs> by the way that was my dad's theme music when he used to play baseball for a sort of a minor not minor league but <laughs> really yeah he, he, well, was, ha- he was the sledgehammer hang on we're gonna debut our first in a series of segments here called brian plays his melodica hang on <laughs> Thank you. God, this this is the best music podcast on the net. I'm telling you. <laughs> um, no, uh, so anyway, I always had the idea that there was um, some sort, something more to him than I than I knew, you know. But I just never gave him the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, I hear people talk about how great he is beyond the the sort of chart topping hits, and uh, and yet. You know, I never really familiarized myself with him. But you asked about my first impressions of this album. And the first song, Intruder, makes quite a first impression. I, I think it's it's an incredibly strong opening track. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and... Creepy as hell. Creepy as hell. And you know what? It's not the only song on the album that's creepy like that. And, uh, and it really draws you in. Album. Oh, good. Yeah, good. Yeah, um, <laughs> I was really impressed. Um, it's always nerve wracking, like you know, showing something to, uh, you know, to somebody that you really enjoy. Uh huh. You know, but then, uh, <laughs> but then not knowing if they're gonna hate it or not. So good. Yeah. I feel glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Okay. No, I, I liked it a lot. Um, um, yeah, I just. Uh, well, one of the things I didn't realize was that. Robert Fripp is on this mm-hmm. album, yeah, and you can totally tell. And I've always been a fan of him, um, and he like he shows up everywhere. You know, like if you look yeah. at the last four decades of music or whatever, he's all over the place, and and he's almost always giving a significant contribution that you can pick out and and say that's you know that's Fripp. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know what. What do you think about that? About Fripp? Yeah. I mean, I love Fripp's playing. Yeah. You know, um, and this is right after he, I mean, this is only a couple years after he played on Heroes by Bowie. Okay. You know, um, this, I guess that was 77, I think, and this is 80. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting how I think over here in the States, we think about 
the British music scene being this very big because there's there's so many so many iconic British artists, especially around this time. But it seems like they were all relatively pally together. You know, this album has Gabriel and Fripp and Phil Collins, who was in Genesis with Gabriel, and it has Paul Weller from the Jam on it. And it's just it's um Kate it's always Bush. amazing. Yeah, Kate Bush, yeah. It's always amazing to me sort of how how small and incestuous that community probably really is, even though it doesn't seem that way to us. So seeing Fripp's name on an album's liner notes, that's not all that surprising, because like you said, he does get around. But I think his playing, especially on um, I Don't Remember, yeah. is really, really great on this album. Yeah, he's got some solos in, in that, that that are really standout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's just, he's one of those guitar players who he doesn't play what you'd expect him to play, but he plays the perfect thing for each song. Mm-hmm. Just really, really is able to, um, I guess, like embody the tone and the feel of the song without just reiterating the melody, you know? Yeah. Um, he's, he's an amazing guitar player. Um. Aside from Intruder, and I don't remember, I really enjoy um, uh, No Self-Control, the second track on the album. Yeah, yeah. Which has a lot of, I don't know if that's marimba or xylophone, some sort of mallet percussion Yeah, I think it's xylophone, and you hear that on maybe three or four or five of these songs. Yeah. um, And it really works well. Like, you wouldn't think, you think of xylophone sometimes, right or not as like a children's instrument you know? exactly which yeah. is awful that's you know but here he uses it and it's awesome gotta get some food I'm so hungry all the time I don't know how to stop I don't know how to stop gotta get some sleep I'm so nervous in the night but I don't know how to stop 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 I gotta pick up the phone I will call any number I will talk to anyone Like I I don't know. I mean, the percussion on this album in general, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, the drumming is great. Phil Collins uh, does a few stints on that. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, actually, Intruder reminded me a lot. Um, the drumming in it reminded me a lot of In the Air Tonight. Um, which I think is, is probably, you know, a technique that he developed earlier and then obviously used. Well, it's interesting you later. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because this album was the first time they used. It's called a gated drum sound. So essentially, it's instead of the drum ringing out 
at a certain point it, just, it cuts off and that's very much that Phil Collins 80s drum sound and it's a bit controversial because both Gabriel and Collins and co-producer Steve Lillywhite all claim that they were the ones that came up with that sound. <laughs> so it's obviously a successful sound. You know, all, all successes have multiple fathers, it seems like. And uh, so all three of them kind of take credit for it, as does the engineer, <laughs> uh, Hugh Padgham. All, all four people sort of... And, and the, the the answer is probably that all four of them had something to do with it. Sure. Um, but there's there's also one fill in No Self-Control that really does sound like a to that also. Sure. Um, One of the one of the mandates that Gabriel gave the drummers is no symbols on this <laughs> album, and I think that actually really adds to the dread of it because it's just these very heavy drums without the relative sonic relief of the sort of higher frequency cymbal hit. So you're just left with that really pulsating drum parts, and I I think it's really I mean, this album has a sound to it. Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. It's it's um those first two tracks especially are like sinister Mm -hmm. and almost like nightmarish at times you know there's a lot on the album um even beyond the first two tracks about uh identity or loss of identity or confusion Mm -hmm. or alienation even you know and that really comes through in the instrumentation that was what was most impressive uh about this listening to it the first couple times um was how immediately you understand what it's about, even just based on instrumentation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, I was kind of blown away by that. I don't think, um, I don't think Peter Gabriel's uh, uh, a very subtle lyricist. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> yeah, but uh, like he literally says at the end of Intruder, I am the intruder. <laughs> <laughs> in case you weren't sure. <laughs> yeah, in case you didn't get what was going on in that song, you know. But but with the instrumentation, um, that, well, first of all, that's where the subtleties lie in the instrumentation. Yes. But second of all, that doesn't mean his lyricism is bad. It just means that that you you kind of you kind of get it and the the instrumentation puts an exclamation point on that yes um uh, there is there are some songwriters like the one that's popping into my head right now is Carl Newman from the New Pornographers uh-huh. who write very upbeat melodies but very downcast lyrics many times tone of the song is reflected throughout every bit of the song from the production to the instrumentation to the lyrics everything is working together to give you a really concrete idea of what the message of the song is yes for sure and that's that's very cool um it could be it could be cheesy in the wrong hands yeah and so you know 
I'm glad it's not in these hands. Yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you, were you familiar at all with Games Without Frontiers before this album? You know, I I, I knew the I knew the the title of the song, but listening to it, I it wasn't familiar to me. So you know, I may have heard it in passing once or mm-hmm. twice in my life, but but no, it wasn't. A, it, it, I I didn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it was one of my favorite songs on the album. Apparently that was a big hit, but again, I'm with you. I was not familiar with this song before I bought the album maybe 10 years ago. Sure. Uh, the album came out two years before I was born, which is you know part of the reason I didn't know it. But obviously, you know there are songs from this era that we are very familiar with that weren't necessarily monster hits. That was a, I want to say that hit number four on the charts, which is tied with Sledgehammer for his biggest ever hit. Really? Was yeah, that here in the U.S. or or let me look that up. I read this this morning. I had to wait for a package to be arrived at my house this morning, so I was sitting around all day, just kind of reading about the album as I gave it one last big listen. Yeah, uh, no, in the U.K. it was number okay. four, uh, only number forty-eight in the U.S. Actually, okay, okay, so that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, but um, but regardless, you know, it's it's still, you know, you'd you'd think there'd be some sort of crossover there, and and. I guess if I was a, a bigger fan of music from the eighties I would I would maybe know that, but uh but I don't know. Yeah, if you if you didn't know, recognize it either. Um But that's one of the that's one of the track that's another thing about this album. A lot of it's about, you know, as I mentioned, uh identity or, or uh alienation. There's also some political stuff on yeah. this album that's really good. And Games Without Frontiers is is one of those songs. It's very much about um, war and <laughs> again, <laughs> not that subtle. The game of war, you know, right? Basically, yeah. Uh, countries and leaders treating this as if it's some sort of game. Um, right. The song is much better than that sounds. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Kate Bush's vocals are very subtle in the background of this song, mm-hmm. but I think very effective. Yes. You know, she's singing. Uh, I she's singing. Uh, Sans Frontieres, which I guess is how you would say it in French. Um, and it was apparently a, a show in Europe where uh, different countries would have, like, they'd represent a town. There'd be a town in the country against another town. They'd compete in games while dressed in bizarre costumes. Uh-huh. And, like, if you listen to the lyrics with knowing that, it just sounds like it's about that. But there is that extra political layer that Gabriel puts on it. And so it can be read literally, it can be read as an allegory for war. Um and it's also just a really, really well done pop song. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um the the only song on this album that I was well let me back up. I was familiar with Intruder because 
in my younger days, and, and Vince knows this, I was a huge, huge Primus fan. And I still enjoy Primus to a certain degree, but I'm not the sort of rabid fan I was, you know, 15 or 16 years ago. And um, they covered Intruder. I was familiar with Biko before hearing this album. Was, is that a song that you were aware of at all? Yes, yes. That that song I was aware of, and I, I understood the political, again, the, the um, political, social mm-hmm. aspects of it, too. So, yeah, that was the one song on this album that I was really familiar with. What do you think of that song? I, I like it. I mean, I, I love how, how um, on the album version, anyway, it sort of starts with the... Well, I guess I read about this. I guess it starts and ends with songs that were played at Steve Biko's funeral. Yes. Yeah, which is a really nice touch. I mean, it works really well in that. Yeah. Obviously, the song would be too long to play it on the radio like that or whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's a nice touch, and I just think it's an epic-sounding song that's, that's very fitting for the subject matter. So Steve Biko was this anti-apartheid activist, um, and a, a major part of the South African student movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was ultimately beaten by the police and, and later passed away because of those injuries, I think. I think yeah, he had and some I, brain damage I, or something. I believe, he was, I believe he was still in police custody when he died. Like he was, he was either arrested and then beaten up or beaten up, then arrested, and then died in police custody. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, it's... So it's a really lovely tribute to him as a person, and... And the song has this epic scope that is, it's very reverent, and that comes through in the song, and it's it really feels earned, you know? not tossed off like some you know uh, it's not candle in the wind 97 i didn't want to say it but may you ever grow in our hearts you are the grace that placed yourselves where lives were torn apart you called out to our country and you whispered to those in pain, now you belong to heaven, and the stars spell out your name. And it seems to me, but, you know, you're right, and, and I think that um, it's easy now to look at celebrities 
um, taking on causes and be instantly jaded about that. But I think at the time that this album came out, I, I don't I don't know how big of a deal Steve Biko was in the Western world. I don't know if people were really aware of this. I, I, I get the impression that he was somebody who, if you were very tuned into politics, you would know who he was. But it wasn't, you know, he wasn't to the level of like a Nelson Mandela in terms of an African figure that the people in the West, um, you know, know about. And so Gabriel is, you know, shining a light on this on this tragic life and this life of somebody who was really trying to make the world and his his country a better place. And I think that there's no cynicism in in what Gabriel is doing here. This wasn't done as a cash grab. This is a legitimate tribute to somebody that he admires and respects. And I think you know you 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 use the term epic in scope, and that's the perfect term to use because it really it the song sounds huge. You know, and not in an overproduced way. They just all the instruments really breathe really well, and it sounds like I can't tell if it sounds like it should be played in a church or in a field. You know what I mean? It just it just has this 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 grand scope to it, and I think it's absolutely beautiful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um. Yeah. Uh, were there? You know, it, it's 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 interesting. The only songs to me that um, that lag a little bit are actually the two between Games Without Frontiers and Biko, uh, Not One of Us and Lead a Normal Life. I think they're both good songs. I just think that they're surrounded by two great songs. Yeah. And so it's a little bit easy to, to get lost in the shuffle there. Yeah. I, I guess I definitely feel that way about Not One of Us, mm-hmm. um, which is a song that appears to be about, uh, again, you know, alienation or being yeah. an outsider, maybe even discrimination. Um um, yeah, you're right. It, it compared to those other two, it it does feel like a like a lesser song. Um, mm-hmm. but I did think it had great drumming. Um, again, once again, you know the um, percussion on this album is awesome. Yeah. Um, lead a normal life is a little. It's it's weird. It's it's a short song. It's almost like a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was memorable for me because of that. You know, and it's it's a very stark image too. It's uh. There's there's something about you know you're eating with a spoon, can't don't they give you knives? Right. It's it's seems like it's about somebody in some sort of psychiatric ward or something, mm-hmm. and it was kind of chilling in that way, and it really it left an impression on me. I mean I can see what you're saying, but uh, but that song left an impression on me for its brevity. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Is, were there any songs on the album that didn't work for you? No, actually every. Every single song on this thing, I, I really liked. Um, I, I loved this album. Actually, it's going to inspire me to go back and listen to uh, all of Peter Gabriel's solo stuff. So, so the first three albums are all called Peter Gabriel. Yes. Yep. And the f- the fourth one in the UK is Peter Gabriel. Here, it's called Security. <laughs> okay. Because the record label was like, "Fuck this, we're not going to let you do yeah, a fourth time." We're not going to do this a fourth time, you asshole. Yes. He said he wanted it to be, to be like a magazine. Sure. Where every month is called National Geographic, but there's different content each month. You know, so that was kind of his idea, um, and that one has "Shock the Monkey" on it, which is sort of the big hit, mm-hmm. and the first one has "Salisbury Hill" on it, which oh, is you yeah. know a big hit. The second one does not have uh, a song as big as either of those, or as big as Biko, or I guess "Games Without Frontiers." Although I wouldn't have known that, you know, um, was a big hit. But all four of them are excellent. After that, he only released three other albums of original material since 
I guess he released So in 85 or 86, which had Sledgehammer and uh, Big Time. And then he did two one album in the 90s, one in the aughts, and he hasn't done an original album since. Um, which is which is crazy because he did five albums in a row, more or less without a break, and five really really strong albums. Yeah. Um, kind of a shame. Yeah. Well, you know, if, I I suppose sometimes you know if you if you don't have the inspiration or whatever, you know, like yeah, there's something to be said for not working just to work. You know. Yeah. Um. And he's produced a lot of world music, and he's done some compilations and things, so he keeps busy. Oh, okay. Um, now, here's something that, that's a question for you. Uh, I am, I'm obviously a pretty big Gabriel fan. Should I shell out the money to see him and Sting this summer, knowing I hate Sting? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. How old, yeah. how old is Peter Gabriel these days? He's got to be, I mean, he can't have too many big tours left in him. Yeah. You know, let's see. He is 65. Okay. You know, so this might be my last chance. Yeah. I mean, is Sting closing or do you know who's going first? Apparently they're sharing a band. So they're going to be doing like back and forth things. Because if I knew, if it was just one was open, one was closing, I would come later, leave early. Yeah. You know, but I think I'm going to have to sit through the whole thing if I go. <laughs> Well, uh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would I would do that if I were you. Okay. Just bite the bullet. You won't regret it. Yeah, You'll probably say not. I saw Peter Gabriel. That's true. That's true. What's crazy is if if you ever go back and watch him performing with Genesis or even on his first couple of solo tours, he's an incredible showman on stage. Yeah. I mean and and I not that it doesn't show on the albums. I think on the albums he does like first, it's going back to Intruder for a second. He's so good at developing that those characters in song mm-hmm. that he would do a kind of a similar thing on stage, and he would you know develop these characters and and almost do a concert as as a different person. Yeah. Uh, so I shouldn't be surprised. But supposedly, you know, he was quite the the showman in concert for years and years. So <laughs> I, I feel like I I, I want to see that before I miss out. Yeah. Yeah, so. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder how much of that still holds true today. Yeah. Well, you'll have to let me know. I will. I will. Um, Any closing thoughts or something else you want to talk about? Well, one, one song we didn't mention that I think deserves mentioning is "Family Snapshot." That's a creepy song. It <laughs> is creepy songs. Yeah. So, so it's it's apparently uh, inspired by an assassin's diary, which was written by a man named Arthur Bremer, I think, mm-hmm. who. Um, who tried to assassinate a politician? I did he succeed? I don't know. I never. Caught. I don't believe yeah, so. I, don't I believe they did. found the notes under a bridge. Okay. Like he wrote a journal and and they found it discarded under a bridge and then published it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's mixed with that, and I think some of some of the Kennedy assassination stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a, another song that is kind of epic in scope because it starts very slowly uh, and deliberately, and then it ramps up the pace when he's singing about like trying to carry out the actual assassination or his plan you know it's it's almost like the mind of a person that is becoming unhinged mm-hmm. <laughs> at a certain point and then it kind of calms down again at the end Peak time viewing, blown in a flash as I burn into your memory cells. 
song structure, um, <laughs> very much like live and let die, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, when this was turned into the record label, the, uh, the American label denied releasing it, and one of the executives asked him if he had spent time in a mental institution. Oh my gosh. Because they were so disturbed by some of the lyrical content on this album. I mean, I can see that. That's Yeah, totally. I mean, that's absurd, but... Yeah. But, you know... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but anyway, great album, great choice, Brian. I'm, I'm glad we did this. Um, Me too. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, closing thoughts. Uh, y- you got me hooked on Gabriel now. So. <laughs> That's my one good deed of the of the the month, I guess. Yeah. Getting you hooked on Gabriel. <laughs> um, yeah, I I would I would certainly go backwards and and forwards in his career and listen to a couple more. But I will say this: I think that this record strikes the best balance between sort of his pop sensibilities and still being very experimental and trying new things. I think after this, maybe after security, he kind of, he goes much more in the pop direction. And it's not that it's not satisfying. It's just a little bit different. This, to me, this is the sweet spot. So, um, yeah, but I I encourage further exploration and I'm glad you enjoyed the album. Yeah. Uh, So what's up for next time? All right. So next time, uh, we're going to listen to someone a little experimental, a little uh, grungy, uh, a little psychedelic, you might say. We're going to do Emotional Mugger by Ty Seagal. Very nice. Very nice. So if people want to harass us between now and then, what's the best way they can get in touch with us? Uh, well, I check my Twitter account like almost constantly. So um, <laughs> so I'm at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I am at Brian Needs a Nap. We also have a Twitter for the show. It's at Input Output Pod, which I'm going to – I'll ask you live on the air here. Do you want to uh, live tweet the Grammys with me from that account? <laughs> what Are those uh... – Monday the fifteenth. Monday the fifteenth. I mean, yeah. If I'm not doing anything else, I'll. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that'd be kind of a fun thing to do. Sure. Uh, yeah. The, the two of us sharing a Twitter account, like the Sklar Brothers or something. <laughs> um, we also have a a uh, an email address, which w- the, the email address is going to sound crazy, but it, it will be explained in time. <laughs> it's um, no smiths, no clash at gmail dot com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. If you search Input Output on Facebook, you can find a Facebook page. And, um, yeah, we hope that you guys are enjoying the show so far. Please let us know if you are. And um, if you have any suggestions for uh, for things we can be doing, you know, different different topics we can discuss, you know, let us know. We're open to suggestion, I guess. Right? <laughs>
Um, no, I don't care what these people think. Oh, okay. No, okay. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I appreciate any and all fans. <laughs> I did dream up a game today for next time. I'm, oh. I'm not going to tell you what it is, okay. but I, I have a game for us to play next time. I do love your games. Perhaps, perhaps in lieu of a question next time, we'll do a game. Are they games without frontiers? I, I feel like I have to. I can't say anything else. It's the perfect way to end the show. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. Bye.